I'll be reading this morning from Acts 13. Acts 13, just the first three verses. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who is called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Manion, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. And I'll pray. Lord Jesus, um, we come to you and, and again thank you for your word and for your, your loving ministry to us, God, that you desire us and you want to speak to us and bring us into greater conformity to yourself. We pray that you would, by your spirit, use your word, God, in each of our hearts and lives, that you would be exalted. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> um, this is, I wrestled this morning with whether to preach on the entire chapter or just the first part. And I thought um, it would be profitable to just slow down a little bit here on these first three verses and highlight some things that are being said. Because sometimes it's things that are just very basic um, that we need to just pause on and think about a little bit. And there are some just really basic things here in, in these first three verses. You recall that the church now has pretty much um, lost its focus on Jerusalem. And that has been um, a result of Israel's turning against the church. It's not because the church doesn't love Israel and doesn't um, want to see Israel come to faith in Christ. But the church has been turning it regularly and progressively away from um, the church. Persecution is, has centered there, and they have not really systematically purposed to go out into all the world. And so now it seems that God is using Antioch, a very vile city, um, a large city, one of the three largest in the Roman Empire, but one of the most corrupt, vile cities in the Roman Empire. And God's using this place now to, have, to become the sending church for the missionary enterprise. And so beginning here in chapter 13 and 14, we have the first missionary journey of Paul. There will be three altogether for the rest of this book. But this is the first, and Antioch becomes the sending church. Every church ought to be a sending church. And, and so we see that this is what God wants to be doing in each and every local congregation, that there would be a, a focus on missions and God using that church to send and support people in the missionary work. And so Antioch, it says, was loaded with prophets and teachers. We don't know that this was a complete list, but at least as a sampling of the different prophets and teachers that were in this church. And five men are mentioned. Barnabas, Simeon, um, Lucius, Manion, and also Saul, later to become known as Paul. And so then the first question comes about, and that is the church and the spiritual gifts that God gives, and in particular, the, mentioned here, the giftings of prophet and teacher. 
So one I want to just focus on a little bit, and this is the first of several things, is the spiritual gifts and how God uses them and distributes them to the church. So I want you to just, uh, we're going to look at a few passages this morning, but if you would just hold your finger here in Acts 13 and first go over to Ephesians 4 with me. Ephesians 4, we're told that how God uses the gifts in the church. Ephesians 4, verse 11. He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. This is not a comprehensive list of the gifts. And then he says the reason for these gifts, specifically apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, is for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of Man, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So God has given gifts to the church. Every church, every individual has a spiritual gift. And the church is composed of many individuals, so there are many gifts. And then if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we'll see again, the emphasis here is on what the Spirit of God does, that it is not up to man to determine who gets what gift. It's not up to the local church to determine what gifts are going to characterize that church. This is all the work of God. So we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, in verse 4, now there are varieties of gifts. So there's lots of different gifts. I don't believe the Scripture enunciates all of them. There are but the same Spirit. There are a variety of ministries, because gifts have ministries. But not every gift is going to result in the same ministry. So if, for sake of argument, we were all teachers, which we would not be. God does not gift His church with one gift. But if we were all teachers, no two of us would have the same ministry that would come from that gift of teaching. And then he says, there are a variety of effects. Verse 6, there are a variety of effects, but the same God who works all things and all persons. So this, again, is meant for us to, to be instructed and to be encouraged by this. So if we all had the gift of teaching and we all were in the same kind of teaching ministry, say we were all teaching in a Bible school, every one of us had the gift of teaching and every one of us were teaching in a Bible school, no two of us would have the same effect from that ministry of teaching in a Bible school. Different gifts, different ministries, different effects, and it is God who determines all of those things. I don't, you don't, God does. All I can do individually is either yield to the Spirit or quench the Spirit. So, but I cannot promote the Spirit. I can't get the Spirit to do something that He is not already going to do. And so then he, he, he continues with this, and he says, for example, in verse 11 of chapter 12, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, the gift, the ministry, and the effect. He works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. So the first thing I'd point out here about our Acts 13 passage is that Acts 
Antioch at this time is top, is, is top loaded with prophets and teachers. And the Spirit of God, who gives those gifts, says, you don't need in this church this many prophets and teachers. So we're going to send some of them away. And the Spirit has the right to do that. He is, he's the one who determines who's going to get which gift, and he's the deter- one that determines what a church needs. And I think churches probably go through seasons where sometimes one gift is, is needed more than another time. And that's part of the reason why people, by the Spirit of God, are moved from place to place. And there is no church that has that, you know, whenever it started, that it has the exact membership 20 years later that it had the day that it started. Because people are moving, and God is sovereign, and God is in control of this. And God sovereignly wants to put people where he can use the gift that he has given. This is why I believe that it ought to be a sense of calling on our lives of where we live and what church we associate with. Because God wants to put us where he can use the gift that he has given us. And so there ought to be this sense, it's not my life. God has given me a gift. Where does God want me to be? And and so that's what he's doing here. And the remarkable thing is that this church in Antioch is sensitive to this. And their understanding, they don't have a claim on anyone. They own no one. We are owned by God. Now, this is hard when you're in in any kind of of vocation, but with ministry, we tend to be very possessive of people when you're in leadership in a ministry because there aren't many people often willing to do the work. And when you find somebody that's willing to do the work and able to do the work and has a good attitude in doing the work, you never want to leave them. You You don't want to lose them. You want them to stay with you forever. So I'm always saying that to my staff at His Hill, I want you to live and die here. And we have an excellent retirement plan. It's that cemetery that's right down the hill. We will bury you here and cost you nothing. They don't listen to me. Though I do have a son-in-law who thought that his greatest job security was to marry my daughter, and he's right. And so, but this is the thing, but I, ha- I have to understand, and this is, as I go through this with staff transition, is the single most difficult thing to deal with when you're in leadership of a ministry, is people coming and going. And it makes you have to believe and act on your faith. I own no one. I have the right over no one. And God is sovereign, and God can bring people, move people, as God determines to do. It's that way in a chapter. It's just a single, probably most difficult thing that a pastor faces is people coming and going. And I heard one guy say, a pastor has to get the mentality that he is a bus driver. And just as people get on the bus and off the bus all the time, that's the way it is with the church. And so, and there's, there's truth to that. And, but we, if it, it helps if we understand it isn't our church. It isn't our ministry. It's God's. And God is free to shuffle the deck, move people around as he would choose to do so. And our response is simply to say, yes, Lord. And so the Spirit of God moves upon this church to set aside Barnabas and Saul 
for the work that he had called them to. So the first thing I wanted to highlight here is that God gives gifts to the church, and God has the right not only to distribute those gifts to individuals, but to move people around so that each local church is gifted as God wants it to be. Okay? So this is actually a very diverse group of men that are, that are cited here, these five guys, um, and I won't get into all that, but it, we see what it does show us is that the church is not only a diverse church in terms of gifting, but it's also diverse in every other way we can think of as well. Race, intellect, ability, everything you can think of, the church has samplings of that. Now, verse 2. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And the first thing that grabs my attention with this is they were ministering to the Lord. Well, what does that look like? And what does that mean? The first time in the Bible that that phrase comes up, that someone was ministering to the Lord, was actually little Samuel in the tabernacle back in the book of 1 Samuel. He, remember, he was dedicated to the Lord from the time of his birth. And at three years old, he was surrendered to Eli at the tabernacle where he was going to serve Eli. And at 12 years old, we're told that while he was ministering to the Lord, that God spoke to him. Well, how does a 12-year-old minister to the Lord? For that matter, how does anybody minister to the Lord? God doesn't need anything. So what in the world could we possibly do that would minister to God? See, I think somebody ministers to me or I minister to somebody else. It has to do with satisfying a need or bringing some encouragement or something to them. But there's a need. There's a deficit. And God uses us to minister to each other where there are needs. God has no need. So how do we minister to God? Well, my thought on this is not very complicated because I don't have too many profound thoughts. But I think that it's, it's, it comes down to God is ministered to, God is blessed when what he has made is functioning as he intended it to function, that it ministers to him. Think about a mom and dad when they watch their children loving each other. And there's nothing necessarily extraordinary about that. But we can think, when you see it, you go, that's a miracle, right? Shouldn't be a miracle, but when you see your kids getting along with each other, sharing their toys with each other, wow. I, I just, you know, Adrian's just telling me this morning that his little daughter, nine months old, has already figured out how to grab her big brother's stuff. And, and see, it's, it's already started, right? And so, and so now, the first time big brother shares something with little sister, he's going to go, that ministers to me. Because it does. We are ministered to when we see our families functioning as we know they're supposed to function. As parents and grandparents, we are ministered to. And they're just functioning the way they're supposed to function. So I think God is ministered to when we function as we're supposed to function, as individuals and as a body. Think of Romans 
I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, what? To present your bodies to him as a living sacrifice. And what is the result of that? It says that this is your spiritual service of worship. We worship God and by implication, minister to God when we simply yield ourselves to him because this is what we've been created for, to live a life of dependency and yieldedness to Jesus. And God is ministered to when I yield my life to him. So this church was ministering to the Lord, not just by praying and fasting. Because as we know, you can pray and fast and God's not ministered to because it's all about us. So I think there's, there's an underlying motivation behind the praying and fasting, and that's simply that they love the Lord and they live in relationship with the Lord, and in that they are functioning as God has intended for his bride, the church, to function. Desiring him, seeking him, wanting to be responsive to him, and they are, and God is ministered to. And the Holy Spirit speaks, and he still does today. He speaks to the church, and he says to this church, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And so now we have the calling of God. God still speaks, and God still calls. Now, I believe that God does call people to specific ministry, maybe to be a missionary or to be a pastor. But that's not really the point here. The point is, is that God has a calling for every one of us. For some, it might be mission work or the pastorate. But all of us, God has a specific calling for our lives. And it's not something that we have to fret over and wonder if we're going to you know, mess it up and not get it. But the point is, is that this church was living in that kind of surrendered attitude and disposition that recognized that God has the right over our lives. And I believe if we live that way, Every day we wake up and our first thought before the Lord, our first prayer is, God, it is not my life. It is your life. And when we live in that sense of calling, my life has God's calling upon it. It's not my vocation necessarily, but that's true. But my very being, I've been called into being by God. I am saved by the grace of God. My life does not belong to me. It is His. And when you see your life as being under the calling of God, then all of life becomes an opportunity for ministry. And that's how this church is living, that, that they are recognizing that God has the right to call people to specific ministry, but more basic than that, all of life, all of life. See, I'm not going to tune in to a specific ministry that God may have for me, if I haven't first tuned in, my life belongs to Him. That's what it has to start, and I believe that's where it was with this church. We are not our own. We've been purchased with a price. We are here to glorify Him. And then God says, thank you for that. I have a specific calling for you. But they first had the general calling nailed down. 
all of life, is to be a response to his call. So, already mentioned, the church we go to, we pray, we ask God for direction, and we, and we trust God to place us where he wants us to be. With marriage, I trust that when, with every wedding that I've officiated, that that young couple is standing there saying, we believe that God has called us together. With every aspect of life, the schools that we choose to go to, the jobs that we take, a sense of calling. It's not about what makes me happy, what makes me fulfilled, what is going to bring in the most money. It's what is God's calling. We are praying that as a new group of students comes to his hill this fall, that they will be with us with a sense of calling. And if they have that sense of calling, then I would expect that COVID would not keep them away. But if they don't have a sense of calling, then it's just going to take something as silly as COVID to keep them from being where God wants them to be. And I'm not saying that COVID itself is silly, but I'm saying nothing should keep us away from what God wants for our lives. Nothing. There's always risk. Always risk with what God wants us to do. Life is filled with risk. But, I, but my life is not my own. And I would need to respond to what God wants me, for me and to be where God wants me to be. God initiates the call. I don't even have to pray about it. These people weren't praying, God, send us where you want us to go. They were just ministering to the Lord, living as God intended for them to live, and God spoke into their lives and said, this is what I want for these two men. Take your hands off of them. They don't belong to you. Let me send them out, and you can be part of that process. God initiates, and God directs his people individually as well as the church collectively. Now, with that, that God calls people, obviously includes his authority. And as I've already mentioned, 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul says, we are not our own. He has the right and the authority to call us to be where he wants us to be, doing what he wants us to do. And with that comes power. The enabling grace of God. There is nothing here that says how they supported these two missionaries or how these two missionaries supported themselves. In fact, it doesn't even say they took anybody else with them, but we know they did. We know at least John Mark went with them and perhaps others. It just says they did it. They sent them out because God said, now I think they maybe raised money. I, I, I think they may have you know, laid out a, a bit of their, their plans, though it would have been surrendered to the Lord. But the point is, is that God enables for what God has called us to do. We are never going to feel adequate for it. But God will enable, God will equip, God will empower those that God has called. It's as simple as that. And so it is a faith life. It always is. It's not just about being a missionary or, or being in vocational Christian ministry. All of life is a ministry before the Lord, and we minister to the Lord as we respond to Him in faith and obedience. But I had a couple other observations here. 
Clearly, they were obedient when they had fasted and prayed. They laid their hands on them and sent them away. They did exactly as, as God was telling them to do, to do. I wonder, what did they preach? There's nothing here that says, when you go, this is the message. Because they already knew the message. And we do as well. It is very clear that when Paul went out and everybody else that was, that was going out with this kind of calling and authority on their lives went out knowing they were not preaching themselves, but they were preaching Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I started reading this book. I don't know if I'll finish it because I don't seem to finish books very well any longer. I used to never start a book that I wouldn't finish. I gave that up years ago. I probably have 100 books that I haven't finished. But I just started a book this year on missions, and I don't even remember the title of it, but it's something, um, something in the title, Do Not Send Heroes. And it's a book on doing missions. Do not send heroes, something along that line. And, and so right at the beginning of the book, the author um, says that Steve Saint, who was one of the children of one of the martyrs down in Ecuador, I think it was years ago, and um, he put together a DVD series called Missions Dilemma, Is There a Better Way to Do Missions? And apparently it was something of a documentary because he went around interviewing um, indigenous people on very, in various countries and said, and with this question, is there one piece of advice that you would give to North Americans of how to do missions better in your part of the world? What would it be? If there was one piece of advice that you would give to North Americans on how to do missions outside of their culture, what would it be? And a pastor in Kenya said this, you Americans have an amazing capacity to resolve problems. Now, it's a great thing about Americans, the ability to innovate and to resolve problems. The downside of that is that when you come to our context, you don't know how to live with our problems. You see poverty, you see our need, you see the places where we're hurting, and you have a great compassion to come and solve us. But life can't be solved that way. Listen to this. Many times, well-intentioned Americans will come into our, context, our context and they try to fix my life. You can't fix my life. When Jesus comes into this world, he does not try to fix all the poverty, all the sickness, all the need, the political situation. He allows that to be. But he speaks grace, and he speaks salvation and redemption within the context because there is a greater hope than this life itself. We have been fixed, this man goes on to say, we have been fixed so many times, we are a real mess now. (laughs) Then he finishes and says, allow us to find God and to find faith in the reality of our need. I really like that. And I can't imagine, I know Paul didn't because of what Paul said in places like 1 and 2 Corinthians. I know Paul did not go into any situation trying to fix problems. He went there proclaiming Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He did not preach Himself. 
He did not preach methodologies. Where do you see the programs here in Acts? There is no program. They simply went out in the power of the Spirit proclaiming Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And lives were transformed. They preached Christ, not themselves. They didn't go trying to fix the world. They went trusting and believing God to save people. One more observation here. Why these two men? Of all the people that God could have said, set apart from me, why was it Paul? Why was it Barnabas? There has been, I don't know how many times now, and, and as I read and listen, and I've heard people say, Paul was the greatest Christian who ever lived. That could be. Who am I to say? I would certainly say he's a greater Christian than me. But is that why God, if it's true, Paul was the greatest Christian who ever lived. Is that why God chose him? I remember when the Queen of Sheba, after her months of being in Israel, said to Solomon, God chose you because he knew he could bless Israel through you. Nonsense. God chose Saul. God chose David. God chose Solomon because they were small in their own eyes, not because they were anything great. There's another situation in the Old Testament in 2 Kings where the city of Samaria is under siege. And the siege has become so bad that there's a famine in the city and the people have been reduced to eating dove dung and donkey heads and drinking their own urine. It's bad. And through the prophet, God says to the king of Samaria and to the population of that city, tomorrow at this time, everything will be back to normal. You'll be baking pies and you'll be eating roast beef tomorrow morning. By this time, tomorrow, everything will be squared away. And the king says, even if God should open up, not the king, but the man that he leaned upon, even if God should open up windows in heaven, how could this be? And that night, you know that the word would have spread through that city. And everybody would have been sitting around their, their empty dinner tables and they're looking and counting each other's ribs and hearing the growling of their stomachs and saying, how in the world? We are at the point of death. How could everything tomorrow be back to normal? There's no way. How could it? And you would have been just racking your brains trying to figure out what would God do to make everything back to normal? Well, right outside the city walls were four men full of lepers. Everybody they knew they were there. People would have maybe on occasion, especially early on during the siege, thrown over maybe their scraps to those people so they would have had something to eat. Everybody knew those four men were living right outside the city walls. But they had to stay there. They weren't allowed inside the city because they didn't want the leprosy to spread. So they were quarantined outside the city. You would have never imagined that of all the ways God could have brought deliverance to those people, it would have been through four leprous men. But they finally, that particular night, I don't think they even knew anything about the prophecy inside the city. 
But that particular night, they go, what are we doing standing out here and we're going to die? No matter what we do, we're going to die. We can't go inside the city. And if we go out to the army, they're going to kill us. So why don't we just go out to the army and maybe they'll have mercy on us and throw some food to us. And so they went out to that army camp and there was no one there. They had all heard the sound of an army, of an invading army, and at the mere sound of the invading army, they all ran for their lives. And they left everything behind, all their food, all their gold, silver, clothing, everything. And those four lepers gorged themselves, dressed themselves like kings, and then they said, what are we doing? We've got to go tell the people in the city, this is a day of rejoicing. And so they go to the city and they shouted. I think they were holding big turkey drumsticks in one hand, you know, and big old hamburger in the other hand. They're going, look, we're telling you the truth. There's food out there. And finally the king believed them. And the next day the gates were open and they went out and took all the, all the food that was there. And just as the prophet had said, everything was back to normal the next day. But who did God use? the last people you would ever expect, four leprous men. Why did God call Paul? Not because he was the greatest Christian alive. That would not be Paul's testimony. Paul's testimony would be, he called us because we were nothing. Listen to his words. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says, I planted, another watered, but neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not that he might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. In chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote and said, I am the least of the apostles, who am not fit to be called an apostle. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we are not adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, if I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. And then the closest he comes to saying that he's anything, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, I in no respect was inferior to the most eminent of the apostles. But then he quickly adds, even though I am a nobody. Now, I don't like reading from other people extensively. It feels lazy. But I don't know how I could possibly have said better than what Russell Kelfer says in one of his books, the book he wrote on the character of God. In the last chapter, he titles, Not I, Yet Not I. And he talks about how God has called us and God has chosen us and it is purely grace. Listen to some of the things here. The New Testament church was not characterized by programs, but by power. It was that amazing thing called grace 
that enabled a band of nobodies who had nothing but God to turn their world upside down. The secret to a successful ministry is not organization. The secret is not talent. The secret is not advertising. The secret is not funding. Oh, my word. I love these words. Because I'm telling you, after 40 years of being in the ministry, I can't tell you how many times people tell me it's about organization, it's about advertising, it's about fundraising. I have a, sitting on my, my desk a, a, a pink slip saying, call somebody so-and-so, they want to talk to you about fundraising. And I'm going, for the hundredth time, if that's the secret of success, then it is not the grace of God. The secret is the supernatural, undeserved, free, sovereign grace of God. It is His grace that prepares the hearts of those to whom He will minister. It is His grace that removes the obstacles that Satan has thrown in your path to prevent you from ministering. It is His grace that gives you the words to speak, places you where you need to be, and makes his or her heart receptive to the gospel. It is His grace that allows the seed of the word to take root in the soul of a, the soil of a soul and bring forth fruit to everlasting life. It is His grace alone. And the degree to which we recognize that and make ourselves available to be the instruments of His grace, our ministry is guaranteed to be effective. Maybe not by man's standards, but by man's standards, man's standards will be of no consequence when we get to heaven. If God chooses to use your church or my church or any other church in the kingdom, it is not because we are special. It is because God is special. And he can use anything, especially the weak things of this world, to confound the mighty. Our prerequisite for greatness is not found in what we do or how great we are, but in how humbly we fall on our faces before God and ask for his amazing grace. He wants to win the loss more than we do. He wants to grow the saints more than we do. He wants to train the leaders more than we do. But if churches and mission organizations would spend at least as much time on their knees, humbling themselves before God as they do planning and training and organizing, God would come on stage and do wondrous things for His church. It's all of grace, beloved. It is all of grace. Yes, we train. Yes, we study. Yes, we plan. But only as a means to an end. That end is to bring tools to lay at the feet of our God and ask Him to use them as He sees fit and to remove them if they are in His way. He's just getting warmed up. Man, this is good stuff. We are all just laborers working together in the master's vineyard according to the grace of God. We couldn't have an effective ministry if we wanted to. Only God can have an effective ministry. Oh, that the body of Christ and our generation would recapture the reality of that truth. You and I can only minister according to the grace given us. As God enables, we minister. As God blesses, we see fruit. As God determines, we will be rewarded as it happened for what He has done. The greatest single issue in the Christian ministry is whether or not the one doing the ministering understands that it is God who worketh in us, not we who worketh for Him. 
you can virtually parallel the power of the church's effectiveness through the 2,000 years of this age using that measuring stick. Until we realize that we can't, we cannot fully grasp that only He can. If God is using us, it is because we are the least likely candidates He has to succeed on our own. If He blesses what He does in spite of us, what right have we to claim title to His victories? And I'll be personal with you. And I'm going to read some more. But one of the reasons this is just, you know, we, we, we can, without even realizing, we can take turns in our thoughts that are the wrong turns. And we come across something like this that just, I don't, me, man, it just brings me back. And I, God, I wasn't even think, realizing I wasn't thinking rightly. This whole COVID stuff that's gone on has put a lot of, the, a lot of ministries in real crisis. And Torchbearers is not exempt from that. And we had an executive committee meeting this past week, um, all by, not, I want to say Skype, but it wasn't Skype, it didn't matter, you know, it was on the computer. And, and one of the purposes for our, uh, this meeting was to talk about the condition of each of the torchbearer centers, and there are 25 of them. Well, five of them are in, are in very critical condition. We are not at His Hill. Now, I've been at His Hill now a long time. And the most students we've ever had since I've been at His Hill, I think, is maybe 55. And there have been a lot of years where it's been around 30. And in that small number of students, 30 students, there we have a, a three-tiered membership fee that we pay in torchbearers. Well, his hill's always been asked to pay at the, top, at the top tier. So even though we have schools that have 150, 180, his hill with his 30 students has always been paying at the top tier. I haven't always liked that. It's made me resent it a little bit, but I'm over it. Ha <laughs> <laughs> um, ha. I'm saying that because there have been times when I feel like that we've been treated like the ugly stepchild not recognized, not appreciated, and yet paying in at the level of the highest, biggest enrollments, generating the most money. I've gone to staff conferences um, in England, and, I've, and I have had people say to me, um, tell me about his hill. I know nothing about his hill. I know everything about every, I know lots about all the other, I never, I never hear anything about his hill, I know nothing about his hill. And I go, I don't like that. What are we, the ugly stepchild? Yes. You see, the proper mentality is, yes, we are the least. We are the ugly stepchild. There is nothing I can take credit for. Nothing I can boast in. Everything we have is because of the grace of God. Any life that's being transformed, it is by the grace of God. And we cannot depart from that. And so right now, we're in a position to help other torchbearer schools, and we are the leper. 
It's like we're one of those four men outside the city walls. The last people you would ever expect could help. And God is using his hill to help some of these other centers. That's amazing. And it honestly brings joy to my heart. Because this is how God works. He uses lepers. And nobody likes being treated like a leper or regarded as a leper. But it's only in that state that God gets all the glory. And he is robbed of nothing. He uses nobodies. He uses nothing so that he would get all the glory. And that is always a good thing. Paul had found the secret to effective ministering. He had discovered that God chooses the least likely success story so that when the story is complete, it could have been authored only by God. Paul was not holding up his hand in class saying, I'm the one, Lord, I'm a communicator, I'm an administrator, I'm a theologian, give me a shot at it. No, Paul's hand was buried in his hands as he wept before God at how unusable he seemed to be. And see, this is a man who never, ever forgot it was God's grace. Our ministry then is not our ministry at all. Our church is not our church at all. Our converts are not our converts at all. It is all of grace. No man and no woman is fit to be in the ministry except for God's amazing grace. Not the most skillful orator, not the most learned theologian, not the most persuasive teacher. That man or woman, apart from the grace of God, may have all the credentials the world is looking for, but if he or she is resting in those credentials, he or she has nothing God is looking for. The grace of God, by its very nature, is the life of God poured through sinful flesh until the vessel becomes transparent and the nature of God becomes visible. It is everything God is made available to the man or woman who knows that only God, what, only what God is matters. The minute the vessel exalts itself, the God who has been ha- inhabiting it disappears. He cannot share his glory. To do so would be giving man creator status and robbing man of the one thing he must have to be man, dependence upon God. Why did God choose Saul and Barnabas? Because they were nothing in their own eyes. And God uses nothing. All God needs is nothing. And God gets all the glory. I'll close this in prayer. Thank you, God, for reminding us that you are the all in all. We bring nothing to the table, God. I pray that we would just come to you with empty hands, boasting, not thinking that we have anything, God, that we can contribute. And even the purity of our hearts, God, depends upon you. We can't even be clean apart from your cleansing blood which works in us as we simply come and confess our sin. I thank you, God, that you are still in the business of calling people to yourself, not just for salvation, though that is a miracle. But each moment 
of every day that you give us, you are beckoning us to come to you. Just to be empty vessels for you to fill with your spirit and to work through for your glory powerfully with the only explanation being yourself. I thank you, God, that you've not chosen us because of ability of any kind. But it is the weak things, the base things, the foolish things that you have chosen so that you would get all the glory and that we could not boast. And I pray that not only our lives, but this fellowship would be characterized by people who are continually on our knees, on our faces before you, crying out to you, God, because we have nothing and are nothing apart from you. For you to be the difference and you to do through us, God, what can only be credited to your supernatural grace and power. In Jesus' name, amen.